welcome to the Damn Woods Wednesday uh, guest podcast. Uh, fucking, I still haven't worked out a name for these, and I'm not gonna now at this point. It's too ingrained in the brand. I've got one of my dudes uh, from the internet, Chris Allen here. We're gonna talk about functional programming and some related topics. Hello. How you doing, Chris? Oh, I'm pretty good. I uh, wrapped up a conference beginning of June. I moved about a week after that. I'm mostly settled into the move now. Dogs are settled in, too. Yeah, uh, for those of you who aren't aware, uh, Chris owns two of the best dogs on Twitter. Oh, yeah, they're great. Um, Jake, sorry, Jack. Wow, I just said your name thinking of my German Shepherd. I'm sorry, Jake. It it happens. Don't worry about it. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Jack and Papachan. Papachan's a pit bull mix, and Jack is a German Shepherd dog. Yeah. Uh, for those of you who follow Chris, you are familiar with them almost certainly. Um, and I think a lot of our, we have a lot of crossover as far as audience goes. Yeah, anyway, I think so. So I figured we, we've been kind of bringing on different people to talk about different interesting things on the, uh, these Wednesday kind of quasi interview shows. And, uh, I was like, hey, Chris is a smart guy. Chris does some weird stuff. Let's go talk about some weird stuff. Chris, why don't you explain what functional programming is uh, to simpletons like me? Oh, sure. So um, functional programming describes a family of programming languages. And um, for people who, you know, have heard the term programming language, have a vague idea that it's things like JavaScript, they don't really Mm -hmm. know what it means. Um, The word language is instructive, you know, like uh, just like in human languages, Programming languages have a kind of grammar and a syntax to them, and they have rules that you follow. But the differences are, you know, they're not just kind of interesting anthropological notes. They're actually important for how we work as programmers. There are a lot of programming languages that we used to use in the past that we don't anymore because they just weren't an efficient use of labor. It's just too much work to get anything done in them, right? Mm -hmm. Functional programming is a family of programming languages. It's been around for a long time, since the 50s, actually, if you start counting from, uh, um, you know, Jeez. McCarthy's Lisp. Yeah, it's, it's been around for a while, but it's also like a goalpost thing. People have changed their minds on what constitutes a functional programming language since then. So the original, like, Lisp functional programming languages from the 50s and 60s going forward don't count anymore. 980 ah. is one of the newer ones. Yeah, so there's gotcha. like a, a kind of, you know, redefinition as time goes on. Mm-hmm. Um, the, the fundamental thing that differentiates functional programming languages from procedural programming languages is that functional programming languages are reducible to something that you can do on pen and paper, right? Oh, wow. Like you can take a kid, teach them some simple rules around some symbol manipulation, like very basic, like there's actually a game you can play with children called Alligator Eggs, and it is mm-hmm. essentially the Lambda Calculus made into a game that children can play just by following these simple rules, right? Jesus. And um, that's a big difference from procedural and imperative programming languages, which are kind of the standard default common stuff. Every programming language you're, you know, the listeners have heard of is probably not a functional programming language. JavaScript, C++, Java, um, Python, all that stuff is imperative, right? Now, there are differences between the different imperative languages, but they don't really matter because you can't execute an imperative language without actually simulating basically a whole computer, right? Like huh. you have to actually like scribble everything it does in memory and everything that the language has to keep track of that way. 
the semantics of a proper functional programming language are much simpler, and Haskell being the language that I use and that I teach is one of them. So when somebody asks me, what are the, you know, what are the semantics, what are the rules of Haskell, the answer in my case can be really simple. They're alpha, beta, eta. Basically, those are the uh, Greek letters used to refer to the three main rules. And basically, it's, it's a very simple thing you can do. And in fact, the book I wrote, the first chapter is lambda calculus. Now, why does this matter? Well, the reason is because when you're working on programs, you want to be able to change stuff that you've already written, right? Right. So if you're writing a, a fiction book, you might realize, oh, I was doing some character building in this earlier chapter, but it turns out I kind of did some redundant, you know, character building later in sure. the book. So I want to kind of like pare this down a bit, maybe refactor some of it and move some of that stuff somewhere else, right? Right. You do similar things in programs, whereas you write more of the program, you realize, oh, you know what? I actually kind of solved this problem, you know, redundantly in somewhere else. I want to collapse these two things down to one thing, right? So that I only have one piece of code that, you know, solves the problem, which makes it easier to maintain. And um, in functional programming languages, because the semantics boil down to this very simple set of rules, and because you have certain guarantees about how those rules work, uh, certain equalities, mm -hmm. um, you are able to more safely make those kinds of changes. And you're basically able to think less while getting more done. And when I say equalities or rules like, um, for example, let's take just arithmetic addition, just normal addition that everybody does in their everyday life, right? Mm -hmm. If you take, you know, X plus Y, and then you flip the arguments around so that it's Y plus X, you're always going to get the same result. You're guaranteed that because that's how addition works, right? Mm -hmm. We're looking for those kinds of guarantees, but in our programming languages and the and in the ways we write programs. And before functional programming, nobody really thought of it in those terms. So I my programming experience is highly limited. I, I like I did C in high school and was like, oh, this seems terrible. It's interesting. Uh, but go ahead and continue. Sorry, my brain kind of died a little bit there. Yeah, no problem. So for people who want kind of like a socio-political economic takeaway, mm -hmm. basically what it means is that software is going to change soon. Um, okay. The state of software is that we have to throw a lot of labor and kind of a pharaonic Egyptian sort of way out of, at our problems, right? Google needs <laughs> tens of thousands of engineers to get anything right. done. And Google barely even has any product velocity to show for the billions of dollars they spend on programmer salaries. Like, when was the last time you heard about a cool new feature in a Google product that wasn't just like taking money from people? Um, right? Yeah, well, never, basically. Not right. in the last year or so. Right. And I've actually seen companies like smaller companies like startups get consumed by these, these problems of we need too many programmers to get everything done. They're expensive and we're just not getting anywhere. I used to work at a genetics company and they had a really nasty project attrition rate. So when I say project attrition rate, imagine this just for the sake of argument. So you've worked in IT, right? Yeah. Okay. Whenever you set up a network switch for <laughs> kind of like branching off of a router and you've got like a new right. room you're setting up, when you set up the yeah. network switch, you didn't expect to have to leave somebody behind to watch the switch, right? No, not at all. That's the state of software maintenance right now. Jesus fucking Christ. Right. So you can't just like have anything, you know, be done and then you don't like because you don't go back to look at the network switch until you notice something's broken. Right. right. That's where we want to take software with functional programming, because when I worked at this genetics company, we would say have three to five 
programmers to mm -hmm. do the initial kind of actual implementation and creation of something new. But because Python and because we we're using microservices and some other odds and ends that made things more difficult than they needed to be, we had to leave behind at least one or two programmers on every single project just to Jesus. keep things maintained and working. Because there's so much churn, so much change going on right. that stuff would just break if somebody wasn't just constantly keeping it up with the Joneses, so to speak. Good Lord. Right. No, that so, makes sense. That's fucking nuts. Yeah. So uh, Haskell, as kind of the arbiter of functional programming and static types, static types being especially important, um, it gives us something closer to a network switch. Basically, tools can automatically check the correctness of your code without mm -hmm. you finding out, you know, way later when you actually deploy the code and it's in production and then it just something breaks, right? right? Instead, you can validate everything automatically with software and it'll tell you, hey, is my software still correct? That way, if one of your coworkers changes something that breaks your thing, you find out in the build automatically. <laughs> and then you fix it before it goes out the door. Right. So that's... And, and, oh, man. There's, you know, that sounds like, oh, it's a good thing. It's a good thing, right? Yeah, it sounds reasonable. <laughs> yeah, it's it's great. But there's actually a lot of pushback on it in software. I A lot of programmers hate me just because I'm teaching Haskell. I actually, there's a relatively famous programmer named Zed Shaw. <laughs> um, if you're in the Rails community, you've, you've almost certainly heard of him. He once gave me advice when I lived in New York City, career advice and life advice, uh, when I was just a, a perfect stranger to him. And he was really oh. nice. But he has certain, um, shall we say, triggers. And <laughs> uh, he found out later, and I think he forgot who I was. I don't think he remembered that he and I ever spoke. Okay. Um, but he later found out on Twitter that I was teaching people Haskell, and he flew off the handle at me. And he was like mobbing his followers at me. Jesus he Christ. Has, he has like tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of followers. I'm not going to do the, yeah. you know, the tippy-tappy yeah. thing just to find out exactly how no. many he has. But it's the point important. is he has a lot yeah. more than I do. Right. And that's just because I was teaching people Haskell. And basically people Are feel threatened by it <laughs> because they, I'm dead serious, they feel threatened by a programming language. And part of the reason is because it's alien. It's very different from what they're used to. Mm -hmm. So it's not quick for them to uh, learn. It's the, uh, it's the magic words that made the crops die. Right. Right. <laughs> and... It's a situation where the direction of software is that we're probably going to see more stratification in programmer skill. The sure. people who invest more time and effort, they're not just going to be accumulating lore the way programmers <laughs> of yore might have been. They're actually going to get substantially faster and more effective. But some right. people aren't going to be willing to invest the time. So you're going to see programmer salaries start drifting apart more. Oh, certainly. And uh, I mean... You know, people who, who basically only do work on like content management systems, websites, and don't really do much kind of under the hood, so to speak, they're going to see their salaries and job competitiveness drop if they don't um, think about kind of going forward, what tools they're learning and where they want to sure. be in the stack, so to speak. I mean, it's like, it's kind of that way with any, in, any industry involved in any kind of tech, right? It's like, if, if there's, there's new shit and there's new, re, there, you know, if you, if you found a thing that makes stuff easier for companies, uh, you know, learn that thing. Be, you know, be, uh, you know, marketability is like an important factor for most humans, right? Yeah, well, and you're right. But the thing is, is that the funny thing is that uh, programmer culture has been relatively skeptical, but also like very faddish and obsessed with new things kind of in turns, partly because okay. programmers who have been around long enough have been able to identify that a lot of the new stuff isn't really an improvement. Okay. Um, 
So if you think of economies as search functions, where we waste a lot of money doing the search, but then it ends up being worth it for the big hit that it pulls off. You can right. think of new tech as being in a similar kind of process where it's a search sure. process. You're going to lose out most of the time, or at best, maybe it's a lateral move, not really right. an improvement. The problem is that programmers think that these new programming languages and, and static types and static analysis, things like that, they think it's another lateral move. And they really want to believe it's a lateral move because they don't find it intuitive because it's hmm. not similar to what they've used before. They're gotcha. going to be in for a nasty surprise though. Well, you know, that's, I think as, as it, as it does, I mean, not to sound like totally heartless, but that's kind of how that works. Like if you're not willing to adapt to change and change is happening, whether you like it or not, eh, you know, sucks. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, no, I, it's, you know, it's, it's easy enough for me to say, but um, I've definitely made the crack when I was, you know, salty from dealing with a programmer who was, I don't know, giving me crap for no reason at all. Sure. Uh, I, I would quip sometimes that, you know, man, you would make a really good plumber, you know, oh, and that's oh, actually oh, oh, oh. no disrespect to plumbers. Like plumbers no. do work that I do not want to do and that Never. isn't easy and takes serious no, God, knowledge no. and skill. But yes. the fact is some people would be more economically productive as plumbers and programmers in part because it's so easy for a programmer to be net negative for a project. It's very easy for them to cost time. Oh, sure. I'd imagine. Yeah. I mean, imagine uh, if, you know, imagine if plumbing was a situation where if somebody didn't do their job quite right, you know, three city blocks down the road and suddenly that just made what you were working on blow up in your face. That's what software is like. I'd be fucking furious. I'd right, be furious exactly. constantly. Jesus. <laughs> that's why programmers are so nasty to each other. If you've ever been wondering why programmers are so mean to each other, that's actually why. That spooky action at a distance, you planted a bomb that blew up in my face from halfway around the world. That's why software programmers get so mad at each other, because that's how cruel our stuff is. And like, it seems like almost like in most cases, that's probably inadvertent, right? Like there's no like someone is not out. I mean, I assume there are bad actors out there making like defective shit for funsies. But like there's 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 for the most part, it's just people like, oh, I made a broken thing and it, it cascades over to someone else. Yes, though, no, you've you've identified kind of the psychology of it exactly. And what makes it so challenging is that everybody is well-meaning, understands themselves to be well-meaning. But the right. real challenge isn't really even in just preventing mistakes. It's getting them to change how they work and change how they think so that the defect rate goes down. The right. problem is, is that unlike say, actual physical engineering disciplines, we don't actually have ways to analyze or research defect rates in a rational way. There right. are studies going around for that, but they're all nonsense. They're, they're really bad. Mm -hmm. And because we don't really have a proper science of defects and defect rates in software, it's all basically down to taste. And either oh. you have a good nose for tools and processes and practices that are gonna prevent problems, or you don't. Now, you can make observations in your day job, but it's like very, there's a lot of noise, you know? Like right. something good could look bad in a production project just because the wrong people weren't, you know, weren't using it or like or they the weren't trained up hand. enough or whatever. Gotcha. Yeah, that makes sense. So it's, so I've always like, I've obviously like Oz and I have worked adjacent to programmers in, in mo like a lot of our jobs. My condolences. Yeah, it happens. Um, I, I kid. I many many of the programmers ended up being real humans, and we associated with them outside of work. Even it was shocking. <laughs> um, 
but uh no it was always kind of interesting it's like it's it's interesting kind of to illuminate like probably like you know i you know, you've been near it i assume and you know it's never fucking happy either um i actually worked as it for a bit and i also worked yeah, as so a system you, a, a web host for a while yeah okay so you know then um yeah. the the happiness rate of it's no it's zero it's, it exists at zero and you're happy it's like zero is what you could expect <laughs> but like uh, it's it's interesting to kind of get an, an idea of why part of why the the programming departments i've worked aside next to have always been kind of like uh on edge when i worked at this web host about i think 10 11 years ago this was before mm-hmm. i had moved to new york city oh, man. and i was just kind of taking whatever work i could get because i didn't have a degree i couldn't afford to go to school Sure. And um, that's partly why I was doing IT work. I was trying to break my way into the industry as a programmer because I knew programming is what I wanted to do. Okay. So at this web host, my job as a system in there wasn't really architecture because everything was in place already. Um, my job was to just take stuff off the ticket queue and fix stuff for customers who had broken their PHP installation or whatever. Right. Mm-hmm. Like just, you know, help, help the people who have no idea what they're doing. Right. And um, I noticed there were some patterns to what people needed and what needed done. So I actually started automating my work with oh, no. Ruby and Capistrano. And um, this was back when, like, you know, automation like that was relatively uncommon. Um, okay. It was definitely happening at bigger companies, but it didn't, you know, using SSH and, and a, programming, a real programming language, not just bash scripts to do that kind of thing, was still relatively rare. Okay. And, um, yeah, I... Uh, <laughs> uh, it worked most of the time, like most <laughs> software. And right. I messed up a couple of uh, accounts. This is like the shared tenancy hosting, where like okay. they have a bunch of PHP apps living on the same server with no real isolation for the most part. Oh, God. And uh, yeah, it was, it was, it was fun. Um, <laughs> yeah, Linux containerization has been a real joy. But anyway, yeah, I got called up because I messed up a couple tickets, uh, uh, broke a server, and... Um, I showed them the automation. I showed them like, Hey, look, like if we just put a little more effort into this, uh, we can like, you know, get a lot more done with the people, the rotation of systems we have. And, uh, they were actually very mad about that and ended up getting <laughs> fired. Um, because they realized that the dip in my ticket throughput was because I had been writing those scripts instead of just <laughs> churning out more tickets. Right. And, um, yeah, basically I didn't hit the ROI cliff on that one fast enough. If I had been a, a better programmer, I probably could have pulled it off, but oh. I just wasn't life. enough. Yeah. It happens. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. Yep. That's, that's a, that's always a fun one. I, mm-hmm. uh, I actually, we, I'm fortunate enough to have been at companies that like, that looked at less at ticket throughput and more at actual, like overall, happiness of uh the departments around you the departments we interfaced with mm-hmm. as like an indicator of how what relatively how well we were doing i mean the tickets were definitely part of it but it was like it was it, there was it was nice because it was like you know some tickets take six fucking hours some tickets take you know whatever so that's that's really good to have like a balance of metrics and feedback for evaluating departments because um i've definitely worked at companies where managers were given a single metric and they then oh, proceeded God. to destroy the company in order to meet that metric at all costs. That's, yeah, that sounds about right. And uh, there's there's definitely an old joke where, you know, uh, managers will meet any metric you set, even if they have to kill your company to do it. Jesus Christ. So you wrote a 
a book about this. Yeah. So um, I co-authored a book called Haskell Programming from First Principles, and um, it's commonly called just the Haskell book. And I'm pretty certain that if you Google just the words Haskell and book, uh, first couple of results will be our website for the book. And then That's pretty uh, killer. the Twitter account. Yeah, I, uh, I learned SEO a long time ago, and it hasn't stopped paying dividends. Um, there's a, there's a competitive secret. If you ever decide to become an ebook merchant, Mm -hmm. learn SEO, like, and it's, you know, all you really have to do is write content, have clean metadata tagging, um, and just have, you know, people that are excited about your book and want to share it. If you can do those three things, like it's not that hard to conquer a, uh, a search engine results page. Well, Um, I guess we're going to launch our, uh, the damn woods pickup ebook this year. There you go. (laughs) There you go. If you need any advice, let me know. Yeah. Um, so, uh, yeah, the, the reason the book started was because I knew I wanted to use Haskell for my work so that my work would be, you know, less dumb and less like flensing my own skin off. Right. And because, um, I, I mean, doing software with bad tools is just psychically agonizing. It's like being forced <laughs> to do the dumbest, trickiest puzzle Actually, you know what? I have the perfect analogy. Do you ever play Operation as a kid? The little mm-hmm. buzzer thing? Yeah, yeah. That's what writing software with bad tools is like. It's obnoxious. Oh. Yeah. That sounds awful. Yeah, it's <laughs> it's not fun. So yeah. the thing is, is, I do like people had trouble learning Haskell. I had trouble learning Haskell. It took me several years to really get to grips with Haskell. So sure. I started teaching it because I knew I would need to be able to teach it and, and onboard coworkers on it if I wanted to use it at work. Right. And... After working with some other people who've been teaching Haskell much longer than I had, I started getting better at teaching. But Mm -hmm. I also realized, okay, well, this isn't really enough. Like me teaching people one-on-one here and there on IRC, that's great. It was great for learning, but I needed to kind of scale up and put together a training manual. Because I was using some other materials to teach at the time, but they didn't really, they weren't as smooth as I liked. They Mm -hmm. would kind of drop people on their ass, which I found annoying. So, um... Started on the book about six months in. Uh, I brought on a friend, uh, Julie Murnuki, to help me co author the book. And the book, uh, let me see here. So we had pr- briefly had a publisher, but I actually fired them. I put in a shotgun clause that let me get rid of them, and that turned out to be a good choice. Nice. Um, they were pretty bad. Uh, they And they're like a well-known tech publisher. I won't out them. Sure. Uh, although certainly some friends of mine know who they are. <laughs> um, <laughs> but they're, they're a well-known tech publisher who's done other functional programming stuff and yeah they um it was really strange so we by the time we dropped them we were a little over a third done with the initial draft of the book god damn and um we were moving fast we wrote most of what is a 1200 page book in basically 12 months Um, i've been working on the book i've been working on the book much longer than that, closer to three, three and a half years, but it's been very okay. off and on outside of that core cycle. Gotcha. That core cycle is when most of the actual writing and testing review happened. Okay. Um, and testing review is apropos to why we fired the publisher. So we wanted them to start sending out the draft chapters to reviewers, really testers, not even reviewers, because usually when publishers do review for tech books, they're just sending out to experts, and experts are basically just looking for whatever nitpicks they, that happen to be their hobby horse, you know? Right. It's like kind of the software version of a grammar Nazi who just ignores the rest of the book. Oh, that's great. And yeah, it's like, <laughs> well, yeah, sure. we can. And the thing is, we didn't really get anything technically terribly wrong that we didn't mm-hmm. end up catching anyway. They sure. would nitpick 
simplifications and slight terminological changes designed not to confuse beginners that they took offense at. Hmm. But in the case of this publisher, we couldn't get them to send anything out for review. Because they were too busy complaining about the titles of our chapters in the table of contents when we had a third of the book ready for testing. Jesus fucking Christ. We spent, I think, two and a half months arguing with them over the table of contents. And I told them up front before we signed the contract, I said, listen, I kind of know what I'm trying to do with this book. Right. So I have like a process in mind. I know what we're trying to cover in terms of topic Mm -hmm. coverage. I just, you know, very mission oriented. I knew what I wanted to do. Sure. And I told them, like, listen, I'm willing to work with you, but you kind of need to be there to support us, not to tell us what to do. And I realize that's a risk for you, but that's, like, where we're at. And, you know, the the acquisitions editor, whatever his title was at this tech publisher, he's like, yeah, yeah, sure, 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 yeah, yeah, Typical sales guy, right? <laughs> Didn't listen. <laughs> yeah, no, just, like, whoosh. And I told him repeatedly, and it just, like, <laughs> did no good. So yeah. I'm um, familiar with this. <laughs> they... And then, and then it gets better. So not only were they fighting what they wanted us to rename in the in the chapter. So there's these certain concepts and structures that we use in Haskell that have unfamiliar names because the concept originates in some like math subfield, right? And you don't mm-hmm. actually need to know math to understand the concept at all. You don't. Oh, it's just like good. a it's it's a programming thing. It's just a programming thing. It's just that it does originate in the math thing. So we just use the math name for it. Um, partly out of tradition, but also partly because if you do want to dig deeper underneath the surface and get into the kind of the theory of it, easily searchable. Exactly, exactly, exactly. Don't make up made up programming terms for things that actually already have a body of research behind them. Use the original name so that people can research things properly. So one of those is functor. And um, functor as a concept is something every programmer wants to do. I'm really a fan of their second album. (laughs) Yeah. So, uh, funny thing, uh, <laughs> Julie actually put in a bunch of references to funk bands in the Funker that's, chapter. That's so, funny. Yeah, yeah. No, she, she went wild with it. It was great. Um, so, yeah, Funker is <laughs> something every programmer wants to do. They just don't necessarily have a name for it, right? Oh, it's, okay. it's, like, it's like using verbs but not knowing their verbs, you know, <laughs> oh, that God. kind of thing. Yeah. yeah. So, like, every programmer wants a Funker. They just don't know it yet. And the publisher was... <laughs> They were just harassing. I felt like I was getting like uh, a struggle session on a weekly basis with the editor and the chief editor over this. And I told them, like, listen, it's a functor. And what they wanted was like, oh, well, could you pick like a more familiar concrete thing? Uh, You know, an example of a functor to rename the chapter to. And I'm like, no, because that's actually one of the mistakes people make that confuses them when they're learning the concept. They mistake the example for the whole concept. Right. So an example of a functor would be like, you know, you want to take a function that, say, increments numbers by one. Right. Okay. So this function just takes like a one and returns a two. If you give it a two, it spits out a three. You can think of functions as like black boxes that just take those inputs and return outputs. Right. Right. So functor is just like this general set of things that know how to lift a function like that over other structures. So let's say you had a list of numbers, a list one, two, three. Right. Functor will let you take that function and just automatically make it work on the list. And you don't have to write a new version of the function that understands lists. It doesn't need to know anything about the list. So then if you take that lifted version of the number incrementing function, now if you give it a list of one, two, three, it returns a list of two, three, four. Right? But 
The whole point of this is that it doesn't just work for one thing. The point is that it works for all kinds of things, right? Right. It's, it's agnostic to the data. Right. As long as you can implement <clears throat> a valid instance of it for your data type, it's yeah. good. It's fine. And in fact, in fact, there's only one valid functor for every data type, so we can actually derive them mechanically. You don't even have to write them yourselves. The, comp the compiler can just generate them for you for free. Jesus. Right? Yeah, it's great. But that's the problem is that what people struggle with isn't understanding that simple list example. What people struggle with is understanding it as that general thing, right? Okay. So yeah. they wanted us to like name it like mappable or like, you know, uh, lifting over lists or just something like that. They didn't really provide any concrete examples, but that's what they were reaching right. for. It's something and, they can say out loud. <clears throat> yeah, um, because functor is a four letter word. And I so. uh, yeah, I, I, I held my ground. I told them I wasn't going to do it. And I was actually uh, I told uh, Julie to ignore all of their emails and to focus on working <laughs> on the book. And I would just be the bad guy with them. Nice. Um, which is a role I'm familiar with. Yeah, it's, it, it, I would imagine. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's uh, <laughs> it was it was a role I was comfortable with, and it's yeah, uh, good. <laughs> I, I tried to like move that relationship in a productive direction, but it basically didn't. And what ended up happening was we launched the book for public availability about three months after we fired the publisher at mm -hmm. LambdaConf 2015. Nice. And we released the first, I think, two, three chapters, something like that. And that was actually before we had put the Lambda Calculus chapter in there because I was hesitant to put the Lambda Calculus chapter in there because the Lambda Calculus is like this simple, like symbolic, you know, thing you can do on pen and paper. It's not obviously about programming. And I didn't okay. want to scare people off but we ended up realizing that what people didn't understand later in the book was, you know, what are the rules of this programming language I'm using? They felt kind of lost, like they didn't understand what the rules actually were okay. as we were running them through examples. So we ended up adding Lambda Calculus chapter later. But yeah, so basically, I mean, the core of the book was basically written from early 2015 through mid-late 2016. So a little over nice. a year. Yeah. It Damn, was, dude. It was breakneck. I was working full time for most of that too. Um, the only time I didn't was actually the first six months, I think, in twenty late twenty fourteen to mid twenty fifteen, mm -hmm. uh, thereabouts. I did have a contract for about a month of that, but yeah, for about six months, I lived off my savings and just worked on the book full time. Um, God damn. Yeah. So uh, yeah, that uh, that's the story of the book. Um, one of the things it's known for, it's lauded for, I guess you could say, is mm -hmm. that people who have not programmed before can use the book to learn to program, which oh, nice. is a bigger deal than it would sound because you think like, oh, a book that teaches you programming language, why couldn't somebody who hasn't programmed before use that? Well, people don't expect that from what's considered an advanced programming language that's considered you know, notoriously difficult for even experienced programmers to learn, right? Okay. That it makes was sense. more of, we can do this because we have to do it for the experienced programmers anyway. Basically, the situation is, so you remember how I mentioned earlier, uh, programmers are afraid of Haskell because it's unfamiliar, right? right? They can't really use anything they've learned to help them understand Haskell. They just have to kind of forget everything they know, right? Right. Well, there you go. If you write the book for pe if you write the book as if you're talking to somebody who doesn't know how to program and you're just teaching them from scratch, it ends up actually making the book easier for experienced programmers to use to learn Haskell anyway. Then in the process, it helps a fairly large number of people who hadn't programmed before used the book to learn to program. Which is pretty, that's, you know, I mean, as, as things go, that's pretty cool. 
Yeah, yeah. I know people who are working as programmers today that started with the book. Oh, that's rad. Yeah, yeah. I, I some of them, a couple of them are friends of mine. Uh, some of them are acquaintances that I know through Twitter. Sure. And uh, it's always really exciting because there's nothing I love more than replacing lazy programmers with uh, <laughs> programmers that actually want to learn things. So nice. That's cool. So I mean, that's, that's one of those things. It's got to be neat to see like uh, a thing you made um, causing like that kind of a shockwave, right? Yeah, it, it feels great. And I mean, it's I'll tell you right now, writing a book sucks. Writing yeah, a like long it. technical book. Mm hmm. Not fun. I don't I don't see myself ever writing fiction. I don't imagine that is easy, but there are Ooh. definitely specific things about technical work that make it very laborious and not interesting ways. Yeah. And, um, you know, I'll give you an example. So I wanted to release a Kindle compatible version of the PDF. Sure. So um, and PDF, not EPUB for reasons I can go into if you think any readers will care. But basically, EPUB doesn't let me f it doesn't let me like maintain the layout in a certain oh, way gross. and it can it can break the it can break the code so it's that no people end up typing in the wrong thing into mm -hmm. their editor because the epub reader you know whether it's a kindle or otherwise um it's reflowing the text so then they'll type in the wrong right. code and then they'll send me a support ticket saying a code example in the book didn't work and it's like well no the code example in the book is fine but your epub reader reflowed the text and i can't yep. do anything about that so yes. that's why we only release PDFs right now. I am testing an EPUB version for people who are visually impaired with somebody okay. I know that volunteers with visually impaired people, but I don't know I if know that's that ever going to see general release. Yeah, yeah. Uh, visually impaired people use screen readers, and screen readers have a much easier time with EPUBs than they do huh. with PDFs. Gotcha. You yeah. be damned. I think there were two main things that helped with the growth in Haskell jobs since... Mm -hmm let's say the beginning of 2016, I think there's okay. been a discernible growth because Haskell jobs are also notoriously difficult to get for a long time. They're just okay. rare. And in addition to them being rare, Haskell yeah. attracted people who were, uh, let's say a little more invested in their craft. Right. Okay. So sure. the, the competition was tougher too. Yeah. And, um, the two big things I think that changed were one was uh, FP Complete, who at the time wasn't my employer, but now is my employer. They released Stack, which is just a tool for compiling Haskell programs, kind of the core of your toolkit for actually interacting with the programming language. Cool. Um, that made it a lot easier to do that. The older tools were pretty brittle, and they would just kind of randomly break on people in confusing ways. And it was a real roadblock for a lot of beginners. I, I know people who learned Haskell after having previously given up because the tools were so bad before stack. So oh, I have, I have at least some anecdote to establish that that's helped a lot. And then the other thing is just the book making it easier to learn. I think between those two things, there's been more startups uh, using Haskell as kind of their initial programming language. There's been more interest from corporate America. FinTech has always been kind of interested in Haskell sure. because it's, it's good at things they care about, like not making right. mistakes. Right. <laughs> Like uh, what was that? What was that uh, hedge fund that died? Was it Knight Capital, something like that? I don't know, fan. They they had like a flash crash uh, oh, thing, and it just like destroyed the entire hedge fund because software was buggy. Oh god. Yeah. 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 Fucking brutal. Yeah. <laughs> I I'd imagine someone got fucking sued out of that one. Um, uh, I don't I don't know. I don't know what the aftermath was, but it was it was an article that definitely went around the software industry for obvious reasons. <laughs> yeah. Oh no shit. 
Did you know that the, the European Union lost a rocket because of bad software? I did not. That's, I mean, you know, it's funny, but also, like, when you say lost, do you mean, like, lost as in it Blew broke up. or lost? Okay. I, like, lost as in, like, After it launch. just flew away. It- <laughs> yeah. <laughs> no, that would be funny, though. Uh, just like a lost rocket drifting through space. No, what it just, fuck? like, it, it, it started, like, tumbling or something during launch because the software... Um, so what happened was there was the Ariane rocket program, if I'm pronouncing that, Ariane, Ariane, yeah. I don't know. Ariane, yeah. Yeah, and um, they were migrating from the Ariane 4 to the Ariane 5, which was going to be a bigger, faster rocket. Mm-hmm. So um, I can actually relate this to speed running and bugs. That's so <laughs> uh, have you ever seen any of those crazy Pokemon speed runs where they glitch yeah. the game into like teleporting themselves across? Okay. Sure. If you ever, it, it, I don't know if your listeners are familiar with how those work, but basically the essence of how those bugs work is that you store number. I'm going to try really hard to simplify this. I'm sorry. Oh, uh, you store you store numbers in computers using a certain num, um, number of bits, right? right? And depending on how many bits you allocate to the the single value you want to store, that decides how big of a number you can express. Right. Okay. And this, you know, it, bits are powers of two, but we already work in a powers of 10 number system. So let's just talk about powers of 10. If I okay. say you have one digit with which to write a number, you know, you can only write numbers zero through nine. Right. right. And if I tell you you have two digits, you know, you can write numbers zero through 99 because you have two right. spaces now. Bits work the same exact way. It's just powers of two instead of 10. Right. And that's an explanation I wish somebody had given me when I was 10 years old. Okay, so um, so that's, yeah, that's, common common kind of upper limits on numbers are things like you know zero through two fifty five, especially in older systems right. like the Game Boy, because the Game Boy didn't have a lot of memory, so you right. had to try to keep your numbers you know use as little storage as possible, as few digits as possible to store your numbers. Right. Accordingly, you can overflow these these uh, numbers in Pokemon mm-hmm. by basically. So let's say you have a number that's already at or under, actually, I think most of them are underflows. Now I think of it, I'm sorry. Um, actually, underflows are really common ones. So let's say you have a number that's currently, you know, it's it's zero right now, right? Sure. If you can trick the software into decrementing, subtracting one from that mm-hmm. zero, what happens? Well, the answer is most software doesn't just halt, right? Some embedded right. systems are designed to do that so that you don't make inadvertent mistakes that just kind of silently break and corrupt things. Right. But these being game systems that were, you know, not like high reliability systems and, you know, they were built with relatively conventional hardware. So what happens when you subtract one from zero on the Game Boy is it would uh, do something called underflow and it would basically wrap around to the highest possible number. It was just oh. kind of like wrap almost like a, uh, you know, remember like a screen warp in older video games where you'd like go off right. the left side of the screen and then come out the right side like that yeah. but with numbers. So you would wrap around from 0 to 255, and now you have 255 potions, right? Sure. Those are the kinds of bugs used to speedrun Pokemon. Okay, right. now there's also overflow. <laughs> and overflow, you know, you go from 255 to 0. Maybe. You don't necessarily know. Un- uh, certain kinds of overflow and underflow are actually undefined behavior in the most common systems programming language, C. And undefined behavior means the, program's, the compiler is allowed to generate code that does literally anything if you make a mistake. 
<laughs> I mean, anything. It's the weirdest right. concept in the world. Because you would think like the, the designers of this stuff would want to make something that doesn't, you know, like shoot your dog if you make a mistake. But technically, right. the compiler is allowed to call <laughs> in the cops and say your dog bit somebody. Technically, right. the compiler is allowed to do that just by the way the standard is written. So with the Arian rocket program, uh, when they went from the four to the five, the rocket's faster, right? Right. Well, these rockets have all these sensors. Oh, no. All of the, the program had been calibra calibrated for the upper limits in terms of G-forces and velocity of the four. And they didn't update those upper bounds. And the test suite, the simulation test suite they had run the software through, hadn't been adjusted to test for Arian 5 tolerances either. Oh, no. So when they launched the Arian 5 rocket... It went faster than their sensors understood. So when it overflowed, the numbers basically became like garbage. They like meant nothing. So right. its ability to calculate everything went haywire and the rocket just started like tumbling and exploding. Huh. That's fucking wild. Yeah. Jesus Christ. That's, I mean, like, so, you know, I have friends who worked, uh, or formerly, you know, worked, like, one of the guys I've had on the show, uh, Dave, used to work at our local rocket range. Hmm. Um, Poker Flats up here. Mm-hmm. And, uh, yeah, that's kind of an interesting... It, it, I'm just thinking of, like, all the dudes I know who work in weird installations up here uh, with rockets or radars or things, and I'm just like, I went to college with you people. <laughs> uh, <laughs> you know, it's one of those things where it's like, that's okay in, like, low-stakes low, low stakes situations where you're like, hey, you know, like, we can reuse X, Y, Z... Like I'd, I'd assume once you're like launching something into space, like you're like maybe, maybe make sure everything works perfectly. But yeah, who who am I to judge? <laughs> well, and that's that's kind of the debate in software, right? Like, how do we determine things sure. are correct? You know, like there's you know the, there's no uh, Conan the Barbarian on the top of the hill who's won the battle and gets to declare how you know the correct way to to determine whether software is correct or not. Um, right. Haskellers tend to believe in a diversity of tactics, if you will, mm -hmm. um, a mixture of so you want things to be statically correct, you know, based on static types as much as possible, because that's the cheapest, most effective assurance that something is correct. Right. Um, it's both like fastest to check because you don't even have to run the program to do static analysis or static type checking. Okay. Um, you don't even have to run the program. You don't have to execute anything. You just you can basically analyze the code and know categorically that you cannot make this kind of mistake. It's just literally impossible, right? Right. Then, Either it is know, or it isn't. Yeah. Yeah, and then maybe you step down to like automate, automated or generated tests, and then from there you step down to maybe uh, a handwritten test designed to catch like things you know were previously made mistakes and that kind of thing. But hmm. the problem with languages that don't have static types is they basically only have testing which means they don't have any real hard guarantees about the basic correctness of the program. I mean, I'll give you an example. Um, you've almost certainly used a program that got like a null error or like oh, a sure. null pointer exception, right? Yeah. Yeah, those don't exist in Haskell. Oh. At all. Well. They're just not a thing. We just don't have null values in Haskell. Now, you still want to express the concept of this thing doesn't exist or I don't have this thing, right? Right. Well, that's where the type system in Haskell comes in. We have an expressive uh, language or sub-language, if you like, in Haskell that lets us talk about the structure of data. And because mm -hmm. that language is more expressive, we're able to talk about uh, some types. And I bet I can explain some types to you in a way you'll understand. So C and Java and all this stuff, they have these things called structs, right? Okay. 
And a struct is what in Haskell we call a product type. And you already know what this is. You already know what this is. Imagine you want to store data about a person. So you declare a person struct. A person is made of a first name and a last name and a phone number. So that you don't have to carry around the first name, last name, and phone number as separate variables. You can just kind of pack them all into a record and then carry the whole record around, right? Right. So the reason that's called a product type is because it's conjunctive. You have a thing and a thing and a thing, right? And okay. as opposed to or. So when you have a person, you have a first name and a last name and the phone number. All right. So some types are kind of the opposite. They're disjunctive. They are or, right? So our simplest type that is a sum type is a Boolean value. What are Booleans? They are false or true, right? Mm-hmm. That seems like obvious that you would want that, right? Right. Most programming languages don't have it. The second one. Oh. They have the first one, not the second one. Well. So you're probably thinking, okay, well, if they don't have that, how do they express Booleans? Well, because they don't have some types, they have to bake them into the language. Oh. Yeah. Weird, right? So you can't just define your own some type that, it, that talks about, like, you know, say the state of a system. You know, like what if you have a control system that says, like, you know, uh, uh, we haven't started yet, program started, uh, program working, program stopped. Like, mm -hmm. you can express that as just like an enumeration of basic values in Haskell. You do have basic enums and unions in C and Java, but they have to be very dumb. So the way the enums work in those languages is they can't store arbitrary data. Okay. They can only be like simple constructors, like a bool, actually. Uh, bools basically work like enums. But they can't store data themselves. Like you can't have, you know, let's go back to our person record. In Haskell, you can have, say, uh, let's say you have manager records and employee records. And you want to say that you have some type of an employee or a manager, right? So you're going to have those two different values and then they contain even more data in the form of the employee record or the manager record. You can't do that in C and Java and all that with the enums. The enums can't contain anything. They just kind of stand for themselves. Huh. They're just like simple dumb values, basically. And that leads to a lot of mistakes because the way you work around that is by using null. And you basically have an enum value that signals, hey, which thing do I have? And then if you forget to check that before you process the data, you end up dereferencing a null and then your program blows up. Well, shit, goddamn. So, yeah. And Haskell it just won't let you make that mistake. Well, that's fucking... That seems reasonable. <laughs> so, you, you spoke at Lambda Conference this year. Yeah, I have spoken uh, at Lambda Conf uh, in 2015, 2016, 2017, Winter Retreat, 2016, and now 2018. And also you wore, uh, you know, gloriously wore one of our shirts on stage. We were very thrilled. Yeah, when I was launching Moot, yeah. <laughs> um, so what is, I guess, uh, Lambda, Lambda Conf is a functional programming conference. Yes. So it is a conference where 400 programmers get together so that they can see my shirts making references to agorism. Um, oh, hell yeah. <laughs> so yeah, LambdaConf is a, a functional programmer conference. Yeah. And um, it started, I want to say the first one was in 2014. I didn't attend that one because I think okay. that year I went to Lambda Jam instead. I don't think I'd heard of LambdaConf yet. Sure. But I ended up going to 2015 because they accepted my talk and um, they you know, 
cover some of your expenses uh, oh, that's, if that's you hype. speak. That's how most conferences work, actually. I have no um, idea. Yeah, yeah. Most <laughs> of them work like that. They go to varying degrees amount of effort, mm-hmm. uh, so to speak, when it comes to like how much they'll go, go out of their way to try to like help cover your expenses. But yeah, gotcha. they, most of them cover your expenses if you're a speaker because it's kind of like a labor exchange. You're providing content for the right. conference, so they're going to help you get there. That makes um, sense. Yeah, so, uh, yeah, I uh, spoke at LimConf. I've been speaking every chance I can get because I really like going, and they usually have um, a good mix of attendees and speakers that I find interesting, and there is an emphasis in LambdaConf that appeals to me, and that emphasis is on the intersection of, uh, you know, the stuff kind of coming downstream from research and theory, and then kind of where that starts mingling with industrial concerns and practical application. Right. And that's kind of my whole deal, right? Like, hey, this hassle thing, I know it comes from research, but it's actually really nice for our day-to-day work and making it less dumb. So let's like see how we can use this to make our work less annoying. And LambdaConf kind of, yeah, LambdaConf's kind of mission, if you will, dovetails with my priorities there. There you go. That's fucking tight. Um, We actually, uh, surprisingly, we have an amount of listeners who I think were at (laughs) LambdaConf. Yes, I don't want to <laughs> name or out anybody, uh, yeah, but sure. one of them added you on the t-shirt thing, I think. That's funny. Um, yeah, there were, uh, yeah, oh yeah, yeah, he did. Um, actually, I got that message from more than one person. <laughs> oh yeah, there you go. <laughs> but uh, we actually, we humorously enough, we just talked about music from his record label. Uh, oh, yesterday. yeah, yeah. Oh, so. I know who you're talking about. Uh, yeah. I, I tease him for having bad OPSEC sometimes because uh, a friend of mine saw him using his anonymous Twitter account over his shoulder at a previous year of LambdaConf. Oh, no. And we've been teasing him about it ever since. I mean, you know, he's a funny guy. Also, I mean, like, I, honestly, like, you know, that dude, he's fucking, he's one of these, like, you know, shout out, shout out to our boy Akira, obviously, because yeah. I already, I already named you on the last episode anyway. Um, but like, uh, like, you know, like, this is like, I, this is just a personal thing as like a, as like a, like, this is going to sound weird coming out of me, but like this dude is like in fucking good shape. Yeah. Like I wouldn't fucking anonymize anything about myself if I was pretty. Yeah. 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 Uh, so he's actually, uh, you know, since we're going to shine his shoes, he's actually really cool. He's uh, like a rad dude. He's super fun to talk to. Good sense of humor. Yeah. Uh, basically everything the typical programmer is not. So if you ever get the chance to meet him, uh, yeah. definitely take the opportunity. Okay. Well, good. I will. He's uh, he seems like a wild dude, and his music, his record label's fucking bizarre shit. So <laughs> yeah, it's great. Uh, yeah. The name of it's Love Crypt, right? On yep. Bandcamp. That's yeah. Him. There you go. Um. Anyway, that's funny. Yeah. No. So shout outs to Akira. Fucking keep it up, bud. Um. Yeah. So that's. That's cool, though. I mean, it's, it's one of these things where it's like, this is like an, like, as a concept, I can see, I'm not like a programmer, obviously. I'm, I'm a jerk who makes podcasts. Um, that makes you morally like, superior to programmers, by the way. I, well, thank God. <laughs> I always thought so, but it's good to have confirmation. <laughs> well, there you go. <laughs> um, but it, it, it's, it's interesting to see stuff change like this. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, like, in, I, I've worked in, IT in different industries and you can see when things kind of stagnate and they get weird 
and they, you mm-hmm. know, you end up using systems that are like 30 years old. Yeah. And like, if, when I say systems that are 30 years old, I mean like systems that are 30 years old and haven't been improved or changed in 30 years. <laughs> um, like we used to, I, I used to work for a company that used uh, mumps uh, for their, uh, yeah, their healthcare records. Yeah. And like we had to, we had to find like a dude who looked like fucking Gandalf to, to manage some of that shit. <laughs> yeah. I, and like, I worked on a mainframe that had some old Cobalt code and the consultants for that one were like 200 an hour, which back yeah. then was even better money than it is now. Right. Um, but yeah, no, it's, it's just one of those things. It's, it's neat. It's, it's nice to see stuff change in a forward and functional and good direction. I mean, obviously with it's in the name, right? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> That's cool. Um, Trying to think, is there anything else you want to talk about with Lambda at all, offhand? Uh, well, I mean, we can touch on the the drama a little bit if you want, because I think certainly sure. uh, at least a c- couple of your listeners I think, might be. I th- you think a bunch of them are involved in it? <laughs> well, so involved. I'm I'm thinking of the people who are maybe more on the periphery have seen oh, yeah. maybe oh, some had sure, seen sure, some sure. of the Twitter drama going around, but they don't. Yeah, yeah. They don't know what's going on. They just like heard something about a tech conference and a Nazi. Right. right. And that's the extent Which is of their familiarity. Laughable. But go on. Right. Yeah, sure. So, so yeah, there's go ahead. So so just to open, I am not the Nazi that is <laughs> mentioned. Uh some people call me a Nazi, but I'm not the Nazi. So oh my uh, God. I'm not actually a Nazi at all, nor no. am I the Nazi. Right. Uh, so so what happened was was basically um one of the things, so the organizer of Lambda Conf is John Agos, and I feel like I should introduce him now because he's sure. gonna be kind of a the main actor in this drama. And uh, he um, he has a few different uh, priorities he tries to bounce when he figures yeah. out what talks to accept uh, to the conference. And I actually understand this even better now than I did two years ago when the drama happened. Sure. Two and a half years ago, really, because Moot yeah. is itself me trying to write software and make it easier for him to curate talks and prioritize which ones get accepted and figure all that That's stuff tight. out. So... Um, my hope is that I can make it more generally useful for, you know, more software conference organizers, but the initial right. focus is just on Lambda Conf because I know them best, right? Right. So one of the things he looks for is he wants a mixture of beginner, intermediate, and advanced material. He wants stuff that's more practical application focused, but he also wants some more researchy stuff. But he right. also wants stuff that's just kind of weird and just kind of mm-hmm. out of left field. And that stuff is always a risk. Yes, because uh, sometimes it's just some you know some uh, lunatic trying to get you to write your code in hieroglyphics, right? Right. Which sometimes is, you know, that's it's, rad, it's a but <laughs> right, right. Well, actually, that's a thing you can do. So in any language that supports Unicode, you can just start writing your code in uh, hieroglyphics right now. <sighs> Jesus, and <Christ. laughs> it's it's a phonetic. Uh, I think hieroglyphics are phonetic syllabary. Maybe I don't know if they're a proper al- uh, alphabet or not. But anyway, you could actually like sound <laughs> out the sounds of the hieroglyphics, and then like whatever you were trying to write in English in your code, you could just you know, do it that way and That's just absurd. map your keyboard on the hieroglyphics you want. I've thought about ways to torment programmers extensively. I guess um, so, man. <laughs> yeah, it's uh. So the thing about the weird sector, the weird talks, is that sometimes it is unexpectedly bad for reasons you don't expect. Yes. So 
he accepted to talk about Urbit, and Urbit is essentially, I'm going to try to very briefly summarize this because it, it is actually kind of relevant to the drama. Yeah. Um, Urbit is an attempt to move towards decentralized uh, computing on the internet and right. basically away from the web. Because one of the concerns the creators of Urbit have is that things like Facebook and Google are aggressively centralizing and corporatizing the internet, and people don't really have any control <laughs> over their data or even their applications. Right. You know, Facebook is not an app that you run on your computer. You're accessing something run on somebody else's computer. Yeah. However, the creators of Urbit also recognize that we can't just go back to the 90s as much as some no. of us would like to. Like me. <laughs> and uh, it's so the, the compromise is we'll still run software in the cloud, as it were, but it'll yeah. be decentralized and you can just take your code, your apps, your data you know, take your toys and go home, so to speak, to a different server right. if you want. It's the exit over voice thing. Yes, exactly. So uh, Urbit is exit over voice writ large for decentralized applications. And one of the, you know, hypothetical applications is that you could build like a, a Twitter alike or a Facebook alike or whatever you want, because you could just mm -hmm. send data to each other and communicate however you want. So that's Urbit. He accepted to talk about Urbit. The speaker for the Urbit talk was going to be Curtis Yarvin, which is the founder of Urbit. Mm-hmm. And dovetailing into the uh, exit of her voice thing, uh, he used to have a pseudonymous, pseudonymous? I can never yes, pronounce it correctly. I don't know. I don't know either. It's the fake name word, not anonymous. Because right. that's a mistake everybody makes. When yeah, you have an author with a fake name that's not anonymous, because there, there is a name, it's just a fake name. So it's pseudonymous. Right, right. Um, yeah. yeah, he had a pseudonymous blog um, that talked about politics and and uh, talked about politics and some sociopolitical stuff. And he uh, dubbed, I think, I don't know if he actually dubbed himself a neo-reactionary. I don't know if that was a term he invented or if somebody kind of made up the label later. I don't, I don't know it yeah. well enough to say. Yeah. But basically, um, the analysis was focused on the failures, you know, in his view of the modern liberal democratic state. Sure. And where we could go from there. And I think it's important to clarify that it's not simply reactionary. Um, it wasn't no. like, hey, we should go back to like, you know, uh, Pope and Crown, like. Right, right. He's Western not a monarchy. Yeah. yeah. Um, the proper term for it is like neo neo cameralist. Yeah, uh, yeah. Which he's, is, he's one of the tech comms. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So basically he's interested in like, okay, well, what has worked? over the last 50 or 100 years, and in his view, basically capitalism and especially corporate capitalism. So instead, turn governments into more like something Companies. that you have stakeholders and stockholders in, you have right. a CEO, CEO basically runs the show. Um, sure. That doesn't make a lot of people happy because there's certainly a very large current in our culture that hates corporate America, hates mm -hmm. capitalism, things like that. Mm-hmm. But the way it gets coded and understood is, oh, this person's a Nazi. And it's like, well, just I don't know. Laughable, but yeah. Right. Now, there was one particular post he made that people seized upon when they, want, when they raised a ruckus about him, his talk getting accepted to Lambdaconf, which touched on the triangle trade of oh, uh, yeah. slaves, rum, and I don't actually remember the other uh, tobacco, leg right? of the triangle. Sorry? Was it tobacco? It was tobacco, right? Yeah, I think I think you're right because I think it was slaves to the Caribbean, rum from the Caribbean to America, and then tobacco from America to Britain. I think. Yeah, um, it could be either way. I, I don't know. I I don't know that period very well. If you ask me about Roman history, I'm your guy. But this isn't <laughs> something I'm familiar with. 
So he had cited, um, uh, what's his name? The grumpy Scottish reactionary guy <laughs> starts with a C. Sorry. I'm that's that's yeah. I don't know. I'm not, I'm, uh, my, my philosopher stuff stopped at like, or, you know, like stops at like Mises and things that are useful to me. Yeah. So I'm not talking I, about Hume, by the way, when I say grumpy Scottish philosopher, that's fair. Um, I'm talking about the 19th century guy who's a reactionary. Anyway, the point yeah, is, yeah. is that, uh, he quoted him. It was, you know, a fairly reactionary quote. He made a point sure. about um, the material conditions and the genetic stock of populations affecting uh, historical outcomes, like who became a slave. Because right. black African slaves were not the first attempt at finding cheap labor for the colonies, right? No. Like the the various empires, British Empire is more pertinent here, but, you know, the French sure. Empire and others had been trying to figure out cheap labor. They couldn't always convince colonists to go. The colonists generally weren't even really able to do the hard, frankly, murderous labor required, especially in the, um, I think the worst ones were actually the Caribbean plantations because the, oh, yeah. the sugar, uh, the, the, the things that boiled down the sugar cane yeah. into stuff that eventually became rum, that like, you know, you didn't live past 30 if you did that work. Whew. And um, it was bad. It was really bad. Yeah. It was it was actually worse than the cotton plantations. Not that slave, you know, should tell full should tell slavery on cotton plantations was good. It was awful, no. absolutely horrendous. But they lived longer than the the sugar plantation people. Sure. So um, and then between that and the uh, the tropical diseases, they were just trying to find a population that they could uh, you know, use to work on these plantations, and they ended up settling in the blacks. The point made was basically that because they could survive at all working in these conditions they were more suited to it and therefore they ended up becoming the default de facto uh, source of labor right it was an incredibly evil thing to do but i don't think the original content the original post was trying to say oh black people should be slaves that wasn't no. the point the point was a particular population of people became slaves because they could actually survive it unlike others that doesn't mean there's actually any there's no m real moral or ethical content to what's being said there. Right. right. It's just an observation. And in fact, I think if you dug around in some of the academic history of the triangle trade, they would probably make the same point, maybe just a little less directly. Uh, yes. And that's part of <laughs> Curtis Yarvin's whole deal. He's a provocateur. And sure. he is trying to make people he doesn't like mad on purpose. He doesn't want them to understand his points. It's a way of actually masking the value of his work. He doesn't want them to understand what he's saying. So he puts basically shit posting into his posts <laughs> as like a psychic bomb to make it so that they can't read the rest of it because they're too upset. Huh? Yeah. Um, so that's, that's, that's my read of it anyway. And, okay. um, so there was a big outcry because some people had already been familiar with Curtis Yarvin because there had been sure. kind of this ongoing kind of political shadow war between people who super duper want to oh argue politics on Twitter. And God, so they already knew yeah. the name Curtis Yarvin and then right. they let other people who super duper care about arguing about politics on Twitter. And yep. um, there is a basically an outcry from this group on Twitter to remove Curtis Yarvin. Right. Okay. So here's the thing about John DeGoes. Uh, John DeGoes is probably one of the more progressive and fair minded people I've run into. Mm -hmm. in the software industry he has always wanted to make certain that people who traditionally don't see a lot of representation in software 
get their opportunity. He's done more to help, in particular, people who just can't afford to go. Mm-hmm. Make certain that they could get funding out of the coffers of the uh, conference. Um, however, if I hope John doesn't mind me saying this, he is a very stubborn creature. And when he feels like people are trying to bully him into doing something, he kind of digs his heels in. Which is a thing I respect greatly. <laughs> right. I thought you might. So um, it was a situation where he felt like deplatforming Curtis for giving a t- uh, for a technical talk um, was inappropriate because he wasn't there to talk about his politics. He was there to talk about urban. Right. right? And he felt like we should have professional spaces where you can leave that kind of thing behind. And I think, you know, we need both. We need sure. professional spaces where politics are a relevant and prominent and explicit part of the space. You mm-hmm. know, if, 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 you know, Republican voters want to have their own tech conference and the Democrat voters have their own tech conference, that's yeah. fine. I won't be attending either because I am no. neither a Republican nor Democrat voter. Right. Um, so if they want to exclude me on that basis, that's fine. I don't care. That's their deal. But, right. It's, it's your event, right? Well, yep. you see, that's the thing. It's John's event. And uh, people got really mad that he wouldn't uh, kowtow on this issue. And some people mm-hmm. even went further. Part of the reason I explained to Urbit earlier is because some people went further than that. They said they didn't care if he wasn't talking about his explicit politics because Urbit was an example of his overt, an overt example of his politics. What? B- yeah. <laughs> so you're, you're going to really enjoy this. So oh, you, know that, you know that wonderful Twitter meme? Where people say libertarianism is actually, and then you can just insert something that isn't libertarianism at it's all. Just some wild horse shit, usually coming from someone named Existential Comics. Yeah, I'm familiar. Yeah, yeah. The mm-hmm. least well-read, loudest person on Twitter. Yep. Uh, so <laughs> that general meme of libertarianism is actually, and then, you know, you can kind of do a little roulette of examples like, uh, you know, libertarianism is actually republicanism. That's the most common opinion. But, you know, just more esoteric ones are things like anarcho-capitalism is actually neo-feudalism. And that just, was their objection to Urbit. They saw the decentralization as, as neo-feudalist. <laughs> I'm not kidding. I'm not kidding. They saw oh, it as neo-feudalist. Lovely. So the, the best part is I can actually steal man their point of view here if you really want me to. But Go for it. Um, so basically, the reason they see Urbit as neo-feudalist is that uh, you basically have a form of primary title on the computational and storage resources you're laying claim to and making use of. Mm-hmm. And um, you, the whole decentralization, the whole I'll take my toys and go home, is you basically changing who you're like renting or borrowing resources from and going to somebody else's kind of controlled resources, right? Sure. The thing is, we already have that in the modern world. It's called having a landlord. Yep. Like, that's, that's already that's, a thing. That's literally it. Right. So the alternative isn't really between, like, you know, roses and freedom and love and, you know, mm-hmm. dark medieval neo-feudalism. It's, right. you know, having one big master software company that owns all your shit that you can't make any appeal to, that you have no say in, that you have no ability to really even influence. I mean, look at how many things people beg for from Google, Google their subsidiaries Twitter, like YouTube, Facebook, whatever, Twitter, yeah. Facebook, like they just won't do anything anybody wants listen. them to do. Right. Yeah. So the whole idea with Urbit is, okay, there's multiple service providers, you know, set them against each other and, yeah. uh, you know, hopefully people, th- yeah, hopefully people can kind of optimize for whatever their, you know, their, their biggest mm-hmm. their politics, are. their idea. Yeah, right. Exactly. 
That's like, right. yeah, no, it's a fucking Christ. I mean, just, yeah. I mean, yeah. That's amazing that the neo-feudalism thing is the thing that gets bandied around for fucking that. Right. And but, the funny thing is that the only thing that really makes Urbit special is fungibility. Basically, the idea is that instead of everybody having their own custom tech platform, you mm-hmm. have one big generalized virtual machine and protocol that everybody speaks. And the whole idea is to make exit possible. Because right now, you can't just like take your Twitter data from Twitter and move it on to a Twitter clone. There is no Twitter clone because it's a proprietary system, right? right? The whole idea with Urbit is that everything is, everybody can communicate to each other and run each other's code on the system because mm-hmm. they all speak the same language and run the same VM. Right. So you, that fungibility is intended to make it so that the landlord, so to speak, can't just hold you hostage. Right. But somehow this means it's neo-feudal. That's, yeah, well, you know, the people who object to this are questionably sane right um, i guess if you squint hard you can see like an ancap city-state kind of model but that also requires yeah. ignoring literally everything else about the system so right or the ideology or any yeah fuck christ anyway wow okay that's baffling i you know, it's one of those things where i'm just like I, I i i've seen i've been on twitter long enough that i've seen these things get recycled uh by you know different you know, mm-hmm. people. You know, people who who were you know black flags one day, rose emoji the next day, et cetera, that kind of thing. <laughs> yeah. Um, but yeah, I've, I've seen that. I've seen like the same talking points get recycled, and it's always just baffling that like, I fuck Christ. Anyway, sorry. That's yep. yeah. Well, it's a game of telephone, right? Like, yeah. It's initially like this, and oh, and for the record. Um, Curtis never actually wanted to associate his professional name with his uh, political writing. Mm-hmm. He was trying to stay pseudonymous. He got doxxed later, though. Mm. So that sucks. Yeah. So that wasn't. <sighs> I don't. I don't. I don't read that as intentional on his part. But no. anyway. So um, yeah. that was just the first round of drama. Yeah. Oh, that God. was 2016. That's there the only one second. I knew about. That's funny. Yeah, no, there was a there was a second round, kind of a resumption of hostilities, if you will, yeah. for 2017, because... Um, Culture War Part 2. <laughs> yeah, John invited a keynote speaker, um, I think his name's Ed Lattimore, and I'm he familiar, was, I've seen that name somewhere. Yes, yes, you're going to find out why, and the reason why you see him around <laughs> is why people are upset. So, uh, Ed speaks his mind. Uh-huh. He has done well for himself. He used to be a boxer. Now he like has a degree in physics and Shit. you know it's like a pretty successful you know professional person. I don't know exactly what he does, but mm-hmm. um, this was actually the first talk he ever gave. Oh wow, his keynote, yeah. And um, his talk was just about like you know basically about like kind of standard self actualization, pursuing mm-hmm. what you want, that kind of thing. I yeah. think that's pretty healthy stuff. I think that, you it's, know, this is yeah. j- just to make like a, a, a side comment. I think it's kind of regrettable that people feel like we need to choose between recognizing material conditions and, and you know, unfair use of power and, and suffering. But somehow that requires us to pretend actualization and people improving themselves and improving their own conditions is somehow impossible. Like you have to pick one or the other. Right. right? And, that's, and I think that's, that's not kind true. of regrettable. Right, exactly. It's, it is regrettable. It's also not true. Yeah. Uh, yeah, no, sorry. it's definitely, it's uh, per que nolo stos, right? Yeah, right, right. <laughs> Sometimes so, stuff sucks, but you can always, you can make your shit better. Yeah, and in fact, actually, it's much healthier to focus on your stuff 
than say the nation's stuff because you have far less agency in what Donald Trump does than you do uh-huh. in your shitty job. Right. right. You have more control over your life than you do over the federal fucking government. <laughs> right. I think the problem is that people crave narrative and they want higher meaning in what they do. So they right. get more, whatever the religious part of the brain is like it gets juiced by the big, you know, political narrative stuff. And yes, that is, yeah, that is, ugh. That is a that is a perfect description, and that's like I've actually I've had that I end up having that conversation with a CIO one time. The CIO was like, "So what do you guys?" And I was like, "Well, man, you know, it's like, like I like I like everyone in the office, but you know, I'm 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 effectively a mercenary, and I think Mark is too." And Mark was like, "Yeah," uh, and he's like, "What do you mean?" He's like, "As soon as someone pays me more and looks like a better option, I'm gonna bail." And so I ended up having this like this horrifying political discussion. I was like, you can't trust companies. You can't trust the company we work for. You know that. You've seen what they do to you in meetings. And he's just like, huh. And so I like horrified <laughs> my own CIO for like, I don't know, like 30, 40 minutes during this, like, the big, at the beginning of a conference where he had to like give a shitload of talks and, you know, do CIO stuff. It was fun. It was a good time. It's like the, uh, you know how like ICPs like uh, horror rapper what was the proper term for their genre horrorcore horrorcore okay yeah yeah um yeah you you know you've got like the personal economy and politics version of that right it's oh the juggalo <laughs> of anarchists yep that's the one that's for rough juggalos but for ideology man <laughs> i was so excited to see like like the 2016's like weird like Juggle, the word juggalo being in mainstream news was just like, I was like, this is upsetting and hilarious. <laughs> I have to go. I was actually hoping they would go further with it. I wanted the kind of uh, blue check culture, the broader uh-huh. blue check culture, if you will, the yeah. ones that uh-huh. aren't on Twitter as well. I wanted right, to right. like really adopt and go hard on like the, the, the juggalo unity thing. Uh, and they, then I wanted it to get big enough that the next time there was a gather, gathering of the Juggalos, that the video started going around and like, oh, oh, news. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. I want, I want like some father to see his daughter getting sprayed with Fago oh, getting beads oh, thrown no. at her. Like that's, that's where I wanted that to go. But unfortunately it didn't go far enough. Rip. So I, my so wish close. wasn't. Ma- so was there close. Was, it was it was almost there. It was almost it was, there. It was nearly there. We nearly had the 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 juggalo fucking culture singularity in 2016, but well, federal government said you're still a gang. Rip. What? Anyway. Oh yeah, no, they did. The FBI was like, yeah, fuck you, you're still a gang. What? Yeah. I forgot that they classified them as a gang. That was like the whole thing. It's, it's just like it's the most laughable thing on the planet like everyone like you for what it's worth all the dudes i so you know obviously my my history as uh associated with this culture is known uh to our listeners but like all the dudes i know from that time period are like professional decent humans now huh like two of them are fucking teachers Hmm. Uh, which is, you know, bat, like they're college professors of some variety. Like one's like a, he does like IT stuff um, for like, you know, like the, uh, like when you get like an associate's degree in system administration, et cetera, that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. And uh, I forget the other one is, shit, one of them works at a fucking costume shop and has for like 10 years, like a costume shop that like celebrities go to and shit. Oh, it's, wow. Yeah. It's one of these things where you're just like, you're all fucking like. I'm like, I saw you take a shit in public. <laughs> and now, look at you. <laughs> anyway, I have two of them are Twitch streamers. 
which is also uh, baffling. Like they the, make a living Twitch stream. The, the new economy, if you will. The new economy, which also, side note, I see a lot of people like real mad about that. And I'm just like, you're real fucking jealous. Someone else has figured out how to make money in a thing and you're real mad about it. So fuck you. Go make money. Go find a way to make money. <laughs> Don't be mad that someone else found a way to get paid. Yeah. 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 No, it, I mean, there's a lot of people who have the crab bucket mentality. Bingo. Um, have you ever been crabbing? Uh, no, I am. Actually, I am not like, uh, despite being Alaskan, I have never uh, shoved myself into the ocean on a boat uh, to go assault the uh, the spiders of the sea. <clears throat> so um, I haven't done a lot of that stuff, but I have a grandfather who lived in the South. And okay. one time when I visited him in South Carolina, we went crabbing literally for our dinner. That's and, rad. Um, when you go crabbing in the islands off the coast of Charleston, you don't actually yeah. have to go out in a boat. Oh. You go into the estuaries that kind of creep their way into the island. Yeah. And you just stand off a dock. And what we did was we bought a whole chicken from the Piggly Wigglies or something like that. Mm -hmm. And we just uh, put it in some plastic netting and just dipped it in the water. And we would just pick it up occasionally, shake crabs off of the netting into the bucket, That's put the hilarious. lid back on the bucket, and then dip the chicken back in. Oh so, my god. Yeah, yeah. So uh, the reason I mention this is because if you leave the lid off, the crab bucket thing, it's actually true. If a crab tries to, if it starts like making its way out of the bucket and it like almost makes it out, the other crabs will try to grab onto it. I think because they think they'll like be able to climb up and get out right. of the bucket in the process. But yeah, they pull the other crabs down. Incidentally, that crabbing session ended at about 13 crab. And what happened was, so one of the other animals uh, South Carolina is known for is uh gators uh-huh yeah and familiar. uh we had been dipping this fresh chicken in the estuary oh, 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 and no. <laughs> yeah so i noticed the netting starts like slipping off the edge of the little dock we were on and keep on i'm like 10 or 11 years old yeah. right and um i grab it because i had gone fishing with my father and grandfather enough that i knew that you know something starts like slipping off the side there's something fishing on pole it. and netting yeah and you want to grab it so it doesn't fall in the water right yeah well, it turns out it was a gator making off with the chicken. <laughs> and the thing is, is that, it, uh, uh, you know, like an ancient alligator is much stronger than yeah. a 10 year old boy. So turns out. I start I got slammed up against the uh, railing of the dock. <laughs> and my grandfather is hollering at me to just let the netting go. Yeah, because he doesn't want me to go over the side into the water with the gator. Right. I don't. Because <laughs> I am my father's son and I'm very stubborn. Yeah. So I'm like, Fuck no, that's my net. <laughs> it's, it's mine. It's mine. Because I wanted more crab. Like, I didn't yeah. I didn't really want to stop at 13 crab or whatever. Because yeah. crab was my favorite food when I was a kid. Oh, shit. It was my favorite, favorite food. And I almost never got to have it because my parents did not make a lot of money. And we were in Ohio where, you know. So crabs exactly. are far away from. Right. <laughs> yeah. And um, so I, I was like in a tug of war with the gator, my grandfather manages to run over and grab me uh, by my hips so that I don't go off the edge. And right. I managed to actually rip the netting <laughs> and about a third of the chicken out of the gator's <laughs> mouth and reel it back in. Oh God. Yeah. He was, he was a bit upset. We tried to do a little more crapping with it. I think we may have gotten like one or two more crap after that. That's funny. But I think he was uh, angry enough at me that we stopped crabbing about five minutes later. Yeah. <laughs> You know, you take you take a risk in an interesting way like that. That's fucking funny. No, we uh, we so like the we used to 
our I, the closest thing I've done to that was uh, dip netting. Mm. And uh, I went one time when I was ten and managed to injure myself like four times. <laughs> and because uh, I was a very I was a super clumsy child, like what, I was just what like, what was it you were doing? I'm not actually familiar with the term. So so during a salmon run in the river, uh-huh. you take a big fuck off net on a big ass pole and you sit on a rock on the side of a river that will drown you if you fall in it. Uh, and okay. uh, you try to fucking just catch salmon in this big fuck off net. Mm, okay. It's a wild time. It's usually a lot of like, hey, take your fucking friends out, beer. Woo. Um, I, my, I, my parents were like, oh, Jake can go this year. I was like, yeah, okay. I don't like camping. <laughs> this sounds like camping, but wet. And uh, <laughs> so I went and like, I ended up like, like I, I, they, my, my dad was smart enough uh, as a human because he's like, you know, he, he'd seen me for 10 years as a child, uh, injure myself on God knows what, on anything, just falling off stuff and, mm-hmm. you know, falling in the river at that point. Like I, at that point I lived on this, uh, another river and I'd been river swimming for a while, but this, this river in particular is like a fuck you river. Um, and he's like, yeah, let's just fucking tie you off to a tree, which was smart because within seconds I almost fell off the rock like three or four times. Oh my God. I clumsy, clumsy child. But the, the apex of injuring myself was (laughs) I I somehow managed to get the, cord i was tied to the the rock with uh wrapped around something else tripped over my own tether and <laughs> fell onto an exposed tree root that went through the front of my leg oh my god <laughs> so i was just like uh bleeding <laughs> sorry <laughs> oh man but yeah that was that was yeah, no, that was that was an interesting time, and then that was one of those like I, I, I'm at a point now in my life where I don't have to eat salmon ever again uh, mm-hmm. because I ate salmon every winter for like a long time, and uh, yeah, now my brain's like, nope, you never have to put that in your face again because you're an adult. This is America. Yes, yeah, <laughs> and, uh, I'm, it's funny. I'm kind of the other way around. We had fish and seafood so rarely that like salmon is still. A relatively that's, nice treat for me. That's tight. Uh, and, the, you know, I, there's people up here. Like, everyone I know loves fucking salmon up here. People love it. And I'm just like, man, get that shit away from me immediately. What the hell? I'll go eat a fucking... I'll go eat out of the trash can right now. <laughs> that's um, got to be rough. It's actually not that... I mean, it's not that bad. It, there was a point where, like, the smell kind of made me kind of ill. Yeah. And I was like, ugh. But... I'm at the point now where I just go like, ugh, and then I'm like, whatever, I'll go eat, like, I'll find some red meat and eat that or something. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's, that's fine. It's one of those things like, you know, more for everyone else. Have fun. But yeah, no, that's, uh, anyway, sorry. We got off track in weird directions. Um, so I'm going to, uh, is there anything else you want to replug your book real quick? Yeah, sure. So, uh, the book is Haskell Programming from First Principles. Um, you can get it at haskellbook.com and, um, yeah, I, uh, I'd like to get a print version out soon. I'd like mm-hmm. to, uh, <laughs> it's, it's a little out of my hands for the moment, but I've definitely got some stuff lined up for that cool. and, um, my future work. So I'm working on a next book. Uh, Damn. I'm not going to be full time on that book until I wrap up the Haskell book, but it's at Lorepub. 
lorepub.com. So that's L-O-R-E-P-U-B.com. And that next book will be the Haskell Almanac. And that's intended to be kind of a, a continuation of the Haskell book, uh, deeper into intermediate and practical stuff, basically. Well, very cool. All right, man. Well, thanks for coming on, um, talking about your interesting and weird profession. Yeah, thanks for having me. Yeah, no worries. Um, and once again, thanks. Thank you for show, showing everyone at a conference our our old school logo. Oh yeah, a, yeah. It was that was uh, that was fucking. That was a. By the way, that is a, that is an that's an Oz original. Oh yeah. Uh, we uh that that is actually the tr- the tree from the separatist flag uh, for Cascadia made oh, into that's a what five. That's from. Okay. Yeah. Yep. Nice. yep. 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 That's our old logo. Anyway, uh, let's get. Thank you for coming on. Uh, everyone else, you know where to find us. Uh, thank you for listening. Goodbye. I love you.